Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, worship director Justin Jackson continues a series on the life of David. David demonstrates God's mercy by how he treats Saul and his family. David doesn't see Saul as an enemy, doesn't do what everybody expects, and doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. It's a beautiful picture of how God treats us and how we should treat others, given what God has done for us. Also, as part of the Something to Say series, we'll start the message with someone's testimony. We hope you find it encouraging. Now, here's today's message. Greetings. Uh, My name is Don. I've been at Northwest Hills since 1976. I came, uh, walked through these doors with my wife in 1976 and have never left. So my testimony really is about God's faithfulness to me and to my children. And I just want to share that with you in hopes that it'll be an encouragement. My wife and I were not Christians when we got married, nor were we Christians when we raised our kids up. My wife and I had two children, a boy and a girl. Dana is my daughter. She lives in Twin Falls now. David is my son. He lives here with me. So along about Dina's 18th year, she decided to see what the rest of the world was all about. And basically, we were estranged for almost 10 years. About 10 years, she called me from California. We'd barely seen her. She called me from California and was really needed help. So I went and got her and I came back and I brought her here. And praise God, she was baptized in this church. That lasted about two years. And she left us again. For another 20 years, she was kind of out of our life, maybe 25. And all this time, of course, we were praying day in and day out together and separately that God would get her attention and bring her back into the fold. My son graduated from high school here, and when he left high school, uh, he decided he had tested the waters of the world as well. And so he walked away. He was baptized with us. Uh, Johnny and I were baptized in the mountains in a spring, 34 degrees water. Anyway, Dave, uh, Dave marched to his own drummer for a while. And so again, Johnny and I are on our knees praying, praying, praying that God would really get his attention. We continued in prayer, not knowing, you know, not knowing what God was going to do, but praying continually that he was going to save our kids. And it was a long process. In fact, actually, the last two or three years of my wife's life, she talked with Dina every day. And over that period of time, I believe it was then that she really understood what it was to become a child of God. And with her mom, she made a profession of faith again and David moved in with me when my wife was dying. And that was really helpful, and he did it to be a help. So when Johnny went to heaven, 
I just asked him to stay, and we liked each other. So I said, well, why don't you just stay here? And he has. And then about a year ago, he asked me if we could study. He came to me, he initiated, and asked me if we could study the Bible together. <laughs> well, it was great because, I, I mean, yeah, of course, I said, yes, let's study the Bible together, and we did that. And then just a few weeks ago, Dave came and asked me, Dad, do you think we could kind of do a disciple kind of thing? So I said, I think we could. So, praise God, the last few weeks, I've been doing what I should have done years ago. So God is just a God of second chances and given me a real chance to disciple my son. So my word of encouragement, I know there are people here that are praying for family and for loved ones and for friends. They've been praying a long time, wondering if what's going to happen. There are no guarantees, but I will tell you that God was faithful in my case. Both of my kids came to the Lord walking strong today. And I mean, I'm just, I'm thrilled with that. I couldn't be more thrilled. God is faithful, been faithful to me, faithful to my children. And I, uh, I praise him so much. Psalm 13, 5 and 6 says, I will trust you. I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices at your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Um, man, thank you, Don. I know Don's not here, I think, this service, but I think he's going to be here next service, perhaps. But are you are here, Don? Oh, hey, Don. <laughs> I didn't see you, so. Um, man, Don, thank you. Uh, if you've never met or talked with Don, um, he's a legend. Uh, he is, he is uh, what Paul describes as finishing strong the race. Um, and so if you get the chance, say hi to him or meet him. It's, it's incredible. Um, if you haven't met me, I'm Justin. I'm the worship director here at Northwest Hills. Uh, and uh, today we're going to be continuing our study in, um, in the life of David, right? And before we do that, um, I'm going to start with something. I'm going to start with a little history lesson, if that's okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you guys, raise your hands if, and only if, you are familiar with a particular event that took place in a little town called Yekaterinburg, Russia, on the night of July 16th. 1918, in a tiny little cottage house in the basement of a house called Ipatiev House. Does anybody know what story I'm referring to? Raise your hand. I see like maybe one or two hands. That's good. That's okay. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a unique story. Um, on this particular night, a father, a mother, their five children, uh, their family doctor, their footman, a lady-in-waiting, and their cook were all executed by Bolshevik revolutionaries. Their family name was Romanov. <clears throat> uh, the execution, as investigators and historians have discovered, lasted about 20 minutes. Uh, Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra died probably almost instantly, bullet wounds to the chest and head. Their son, Alexei, who was 13 years old, died pinned to the chair that they had given for him. Uh, their four daughters, had, their four teenage daughters, had initially missed the uh, initial shooting, and they were huddled in a corner, screaming and begging for mercy as the soldiers bayoneted them because they believed that the gunshots were alerting the neighbors. 
And these soldiers, the whole time they did this, shouted phrases like, for the workers and for the revolution, uh, they justified their actions. For them, this was vengeance, and to them it was a form of justice. Now, as heinous as that sounds, uh, the unfortunate truth is that's nothing new in human history. There's plenty of examples, the July 14th Revolution, uh, the French Revolution's Reign of Terror, the War of the Roses between the Yorks and the Lancasters. It's actually a very uh, common occurrence when power shifts in a country, right? Um, and much of the time, these killings are logical. The idea being that if there, any member of this royal family, this old royal family survives, even the youngest, could grow up and eventually start their own rebellion against the new regime, right? A lot of times, they're simple vengeance, right? You were bad rulers, and for that, you all deserve to die. And it's based on something found within every human, uh, within the nature of all human beings, right? Something that happens on the individual level, as well as these like family levels or national levels, right? It's this concept of tit for tat, right? You hurt me, I hurt you. I was talking uh, with a friend uh, this week, uh, a lawyer here who goes to our church. Uh, We were having lunch and we were talking about this concept of justice and vengeance. And, you know, he mentioned to me that uh, with his clients, the first time he meets with his clients, um, generally nine times out of 10, the first thing they ask is, okay, so what are we going to do to them? Right, this idea of you know how are they going to hurt like I've hurt, and he has to come back to them and he says, no, I'm not. I'm not going after them. I'm going after their insurance company. Right? It's not about hurting them. It's about making you whole. <clears throat> but we want. We don't want that sometimes, right? I, you hurt me. You wronged me. You made me feel pain. I want you to hurt. I want you to feel pain. I want you to suffer as I have suffered. And there's a phrase associated with this in uh, psychology journals and sociology journals um, called the cycle of vengeance. And the basic structure of the cycle of vengeance goes uh, something like this. You have a man and he, uh, for whatever reason, he kills his neighbor because he stole some money from him, right? Then that man, his neighbor, his son grows up and all he sees is the man who murdered his father. So he grows up and he murders his man's killer or his father's killer. And then that guy's son grows up and all he sees is a guy killing his father. So he murders the next guy and on and on the cycle goes. And worse than that, the cycle is often a positive feedback loop, right? It escalates. You hurt me. You hit me. I hit you back harder. You hit me back harder. Well, I don't really like being hit back. So I'm going to hit you so hard you can't possibly hit me back, right? Back and forth, over and over, endless pain and misery. Open up any history textbook and you'll know what I'm talking about. Now, the good news is, uh, and I promise you there is good news, Um, the rest of this sermon is actually very positive. Hopefully you guys will will get this message. You'll be encouraged by the end. Um, The good news is we don't have to live in that cycle. Okay, we can break that cycle. And today we're going to look at how David broke that cycle in his own life. And in so doing, he showed us just a little bit, a little tiny picture of the heart of God, a picture that would come clear a thousand years later uh, through David's direct descendant, his life and teachings. That person's name was Jesus. So for the last few weeks, we've been studying the life of David who he was, what he did, and most importantly, and Ron said this perfectly last week. He, he said this little phrase in his sermon. I can't remember where in the sermon it was, but he basically said, we're looking at what David's life demonstrates about God. And today we're going to continue that study by looking at one particular season of David's life, a season that honestly was full of a lot of pain, a lot of misery for David, but David's actions during and after this season are going to be the focus of our study this morning. So, 
last week, just to set the scene, our associate pastor, Ron, he took us through four scenes of David's life. And by the end of the text, we kind of finished in this kind of uneasy place where Saul's, or David's married to Saul's daughter. He's best friends with Saul's son. Um, but Saul doesn't really like David, right? He's jealous of David's popularity. He's also being tormented by what the text calls an evil spirit. And his jealousy turns into um, kind of a paranoia. And then his paranoia eventually just turns into psychotic episodes, right? Um, Saul's going crazy. He eventually tries to kill David several times. And finally, by 1 Samuel 19, uh, we read these words in the beginning of the chapter. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul's putting out an APB, right? You see David, kill on sight. And by verse 18 of that same chapter, we read that David is on the run. He's on the lamb. He's a fugitive. And this goes on for like 12 chapters of 1 Samuel, basically the whole rest of 1 Samuel. It goes back and forth. Sometimes David's in Saul's good graces, but then Saul changes his mind and starts chasing him again. It goes back and forth for 12 chapters. So picture this for a second. Here's a guy, maybe just about getting into his 20s, right? He's been visited by the prophet of Israel. He's had his head anointed by oil, and he's been told, you're going to be the new king. And in the next scene, we see him slaying the Philistine champion that no one else, not even the king, had the courage to fight, right? He receives all this blessing and honor from the king's son. He's married to the king's daughter. He's fighting the king's battles for him. He's playing soothing music for the king in his court. He's the darling of the people. He's never once demanded the crown. He's never plotted behind Saul's back. And if you're David, you're probably thinking, I've done everything right. And yet, here he is, betrayed by the king and country. He's on the lam. He's treated like a criminal, a beggar, a thief moving from cave to cave, living in constant fear for his life. And guess what? Still not king. Small wonder that when we read the Psalms, those that David wrote while he was on the run, they often include questions like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Things like, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Or I love this one, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is what David's wrestling with. This is David's life. Bible scholars believe this period may have lasted up to 13 years. Can you imagine? I think it's funny. I, we talk about a lot in, um, in Christian circles, uh, this concept of like a season of life that you're in, right? Christian self-help books talk about this all the time. And it's like, oh, you're going through this season. This is a hard season. We say that to one another, right? A uh, season of growth for you. God's teaching you something in this season. But I think so often as like American Christians, we consider those seasons as like, we think of them in relatively short terms. Oh, this is a really hard year. You know, this is a really hard year for our family. It's been a couple of really tough years. Maybe for you, it's been like one really tough semester in school. But 13 years, 13 years, David's waiting, knowing every minute of every day, he's being hunted as public enemy number one, living in shame and anonymity for crimes he didn't commit. And yet, in the midst of all this, the heart of David is going to reveal to us a picture of the heart of God because David doesn't respond how we might expect him to. In fact, he doesn't really respond in a way that most people think he ought to. So let's turn our Bibles this morning. Our first scene we're going to be looking at is found in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 12. I don't have it on the screen, so you're just going to have to read it on, in your Bibles, physical Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair, like beneath the chair in front of you. 
Um, that's our gift to you as a church. If you don't have a Bible uh, of your own, like that's yours. You can have that. We want you to have that. Um, but yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 12. Um, I'm going to set the scene while you guys are turning there because we're not reading the whole scene. So um, then I'll invite you to stand as we read God's word. So here's the scene. David is on the run. He's hidden himself in a cave with a few of his mighty men, basically these few guys who've decided to be loyal to David, so they're on the run as well. Saul and his army show up. They're attempting to capture them, but they can't find them. Now Saul, he goes into the cave to, the text says, relieve himself. He's going to the bathroom. He needs some privacy. He needs, he needs to be alone. Uh, deeper in the cave, unbeknownst to Saul, are David and all of his men. Now a bunch of David's men, when this happens, are like, Dude, this is amazing. God has literally just delivered Saul to you on a silver platter. He's alone. He's in a very vulnerable state. Sneak up and gut him and you can be king. And we can all go home. And David doesn't do that. He does sneak up stealthily. He cuts off a portion of Saul's robe. How Saul didn't notice, we'll never know. And then when when Saul is done, he walks out of the cave. And this is what follows. 1 Samuel 24, 8 through 12. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Samuel 24, verses 8 through 12. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, church. You can have a seat. All right, so three things that we're going to take away from this passage this morning. And just for clarity's sake, these are going to be the same three points in all the scenes we look at this morning. So I'm going to look at a few other scenes in David's life. So the three points are going to stay the same. They're just going to look a little bit different in each scene, okay? Just going to uh, get a little bit better view and a clearer view in each one. So points are going to stay the same. Here they are. Number one, David sees Saul differently than everyone else. David sees Saul differently than everyone else around him. Number two, David doesn't do what everyone else would do. We're going to see this over and over again. All other people's decisions, David doesn't do it. He does his own thing, something very different. And finally, number three, David ultimately leaves Saul's fate up to God. David ultimately leaves Saul's fate up to God. Number one, right? David sees Saul differently than everyone else. David calls Saul God's anointed in verse 10. I want to clarify something. David has no problem uh, going to war against God's enemies, right? Uh, He's been doing it for the last seven uh, chapters. He's a warrior. He's killed many, many people. People He considers his enemies because they're enemies to God. However, David doesn't see that when he sees Saul. He sees the man God first chose to lead Israel. He sees God's choice. He sees God's will. Everyone else around him, 
all they see is a madman. They see a poor leader. They see a raving lunatic. They see a monster. But David, David sees the man God made to be king. He knows Saul's failures, but never once stoops to dehumanizing Saul. Number two, though David does not see Saul as his enemy, everyone else certainly does, It'll be a recurring theme this morning that David's friends, his generals, his advisors, constantly these guys are attempting to persuade him that the right thing to do is nearly always fight back, kill or be killed, get your sweet revenge, take the enemy out before they have a chance to do the same to you. In this particular case, these men even justify it by saying in verse 4, in verse 4 they say, this is clearly the Lord putting the enemy into your hand. God wants you to do this. But David doesn't buy it. Because number three And we talked about this last week. This was like Ron's whole point. David trusts God enough to place Saul's fate not in his own hands, but in God's hands. And that's super hard. The key verse I want us to take away from this passage, verse 12, David says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David recognizes that only God, only God, his God, is capable of truly just vengeance against evil, and he trusts God enough to not take matters into his own hands. Our next scene, and like I said, remember the three points stay the same, so just look for these three points as we go through this next scene. Our our next scene is found in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So if you guys want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1, before we jump in, I'll give you some more context. David's been on the run from Saul for years now. In the meantime, here's a problem for Saul. Saul's also had to deal with the Philistines while he's hunting David. So back and forth, he has these situations where he's hunting David and he's fighting the Philistines. And finally, by the end of 1 Samuel, uh, there is a battle that takes place in which Saul, most of his sons, including Jonathan, and and his entire army are basically wiped out, killed by the Philistines. Saul actually, he, seeing the battle that's it's not going in his favor, he actually kills himself. He falls on his sword. He commits suicide. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. Like, it's super depressing. Um, thank goodness there's a 2 Samuel. Uh, but that's how 1 Samuel ends. And where 2 Samuel picks up uh, is when in chapter 1, this messenger, there's a messenger, he comes. He's an Amalekite, uh, basically uh, some on and off enemies of Israel for a long time. Uh, this young man, he stumbles into David's camp and he delivers a message to David. And he delivers a message that says, hey, Saul is dead, uh, and uh, and Saul and most of his sons are dead, and guess what? Uh, This guy says he lies, and he says he's the one who actually killed Saul, because, and this is his words in verse 9, basically he says, Saul didn't have the guts to go through with it. If you want to read the actual text, it's in verse 9, I'm just paraphrasing there. And he brings David Saul's crown and his armlet, basically these symbols that are saying, hey, look, you can be king now, Right? Now, to most of us, this would be great news. This is the news that David and his friends have been waiting to hear for years, right? Like, no more hiding, no more squatting in caves. The path to the throne is open. But look at David's response in verse 11. It says, Then David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to put, your hand, put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you. I have killed the Lord's anointed. David weeps at the death of his enemy, right? Bear in mind, he's not just weeping for Jonathan. It does say he weeps for Jonathan and that would be normal. We would understand that. Jonathan was his best friend. Of course, he's going to weep for Jonathan. But the text makes it very clear. He ain't just weeping for Jonathan. He weeps, he and his men weep for Saul and they weep for the army that just got decimated. Those were their fellow Israelites. Those men died. Those men hunted them for years. And when they die, they mourn. They were their people. David saw them not as his enemies, but God's people. Thankfully, in this particular passage, uh, David's friends actually do mourn with him. But check out this Amalekite, right? He thought he was delivering good news. Most Bible scholars agree that the reason he lied about killing Saul is because he thought he was going to get a reward, right? I killed the bad guy, right? Like, your enemy, I brought you the crown. Don't I deserve a reward? But look at David's response. He's disgusted with him. He has him executed saying, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you. To David, what this man claims to have done is a crime. This passage clearly shows us how vengeance against Saul never once entered into David's mind. In fact, the only righteous vengeance he takes is against this man who straight up admitted to murdering Saul. In fact, as a little bonus I'd seen, we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on this, but if you jump to chapter four, um, something really similar happens. At this point, uh, there's been a bit of a power struggle between uh, David's forces and uh, Saul's remaining son. His name is Ishbosheth. It's sort of a civil war, very War of the Roses, if uh, that history reference means anything to you. And in the midst of this conflict, these two guys, these brothers, uh, their names are Rechab and Bana. Um, they're captains of Ishbosheth's raiding parties, right? So they're on Ishbosheth's side. Um, but these two guys, they decide during this little civil war, they've had enough. They see how the wind is blowing. They know David's going to become king. They know he's going to win, and they want to be on the winning side. So they sneak into Ishbosheth's house. And they murder him in his sleep. And they cut off his head and they bring it to David. And this interaction is just priceless because uh, once again, it shows David's heart in the, in the midst of all this conflict. Uh, we read this starting kind of in the middle of verse seven. It says, they took his head and they went by the way of the Arabah all night and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and they cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. These guys full on expected David to be like, well done, fellas. What they got instead was David's righteous fury over a man, over the blood of a man he never considered his true enemy. He straight up calls Ishbosheth a righteous man. He saw him not as the bad guy, all the people around him saw him as a bad guy, but he saw him as a child of God. 
These guys and so many others in the midst of these conflicts couldn't trust God's timing with setting David on the throne. You'll see this many more times in David's story. Even later on, you'll see the murder, uh, you'll see the murder of Abner as you read. You'll see the murder of Absalom, David's son. David's generals and warriors doing what they thought was right. If you remember back in our study of the book of Judges, what was right in their own eyes, killing people who they considered their enemies. And over and over and over again, David says, no, that won't be me. That won't be my kingdom. And finally, uh, we come to one of the sweetest moments in all of scripture. I, I love this moment so much. Second Samuel chapter 9. David's been king for a little while now. The civil wars are over. Peace finally reigns in Israel. All that God has promised to David is coming true. It's awesome. But there's one more thing he has to do. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, we read this. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Well, it turns out there is. There's a young man named Mephibosheth. He's a cripple. Uh, maimed as a child during the civil wars uh, between Saul's family and David. And, and David invites him to the palace. And uh, Mephibosheth arrives, and he's fully expecting, like everyone else, that this is probably the end for him, right? Like, he's the final loose end. He's the last threat to David's new kingdom. He's the last Romanov. And he falls to his face, and he pays homage to David, and he says, I am your servant. And David says to him in verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he pays homage to him again and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and all of his house I, give, I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and, bring, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson, he's referring to Saul, by the way, when he says your master's grandson, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And my friends, if that story doesn't wrench your heart just a little bit, it should. Because you're Mephibosheth and I'm Mephibosheth. See, we're all members of a lineage that started all the way back at the Garden of Eden. We're members of a royal family called Humanity that at the very beginning raised up a banner called Sin and went to war and rebelled against God. And there is so much parallel here between David's treatment of Mephibosheth and Christ's treatment of us. See, Jesus, a thousand years later, he invited us, who had been his enemies, to sit at his table, to feast with him forever. That cross, that cross represents the breaking of the wheel, the cycle of vengeance. Because that's not the heart of God. It could have been, right? We rebelled. We were the Sauls. We were the antagonists. God had every right to fight back, but in a tiny little window through David, and then in a much greater wide open screen door through Jesus, God shows us his true heart. And it's a heart of mercy. And that's what today's sermon is about, ultimately, at the end of the day. Today's sermon is about mercy. David showed mercy and kindness to the house of Saul, his enemies. It was unpopular, yeah. It was illogical, 
No one else wanted him to do it. At every turn, all of David's generals and his advisors kept on saying, come on, hop on the wheel, man. Kill or be killed. Make them pay for what they've done. And trusting God, David chose mercy. I think it's kind of funny. The last time I preached, uh, the main theme we studied from Philemon was forgiveness. Uh, This sermon might sound extremely familiar and similar to that. Uh, We often think of mercy and forgiveness as basically the same thing, but they're definitely not. Here's how they're different. Forgiveness is the letting go of our anger and resentment, right? It's avoiding what I called a few months ago this spiral of unforgiveness or bitterness, right? Remember we talked about sepsis? Mercy is not the same. Mercy is having the power and the right to inflict harsh treatment on those who deserve it and choosing not to. And church, God shows us that mercy every single day of our lives. And here's the hard part. Here's the annoying part. Here's the part we sometimes wish wasn't true. Jesus has called us into that mercy as well. You read these statements and see if these sound anything like what David said in these last few passages. We read these statements from Jesus in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And of course, the one where many of us are super familiar with, we've heard it a million times, Matthew 5, 38 through 39, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In Luke 6, 35 through 36, he says this, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And Paul continues this trend in uh, the New Testament in his writings. Romans twelve fourteen says, Bless those who persecute you, bless who do not curse. A few verses down in verse 19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If that doesn't sound like David, I don't know what else does. And I think this one really puts a bow on it. James 2.13, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So similarly to what Ron said last week, I'm not saying anything super new here. David trusted his God. Thousands of years before Paul penned those words in Romans, David left his enemies to the wrath of God. And he was able to do so because he trusted that God's way was better than his way, right? On top of that, David knew that his God was merciful. Similar to how Jonah didn't like how God was merciful, even though he knew it, David rejoiced in it. He wrote this famous lyric, right? Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David knew his God was merciful and he loved that his God was merciful and he wanted to be merciful too. He showed his heart after God by living a life characterized by trust and mercy. Was it perfect? No. Did he fail? Absolutely. We're in fact going to read very soon about a political murder that David commits later on in his life. But his mercy to Saul and his family demonstrates for us, like a clouded mirror, the mercy that God has for all of us. It's the same mercy that put Christ on that cross. And it's the same mercy Christ calls all of us to. It's a mercy born out of love right? Love for your enemies, right? Love uh, for those of us to consider our enemies. Love for those who persecute us. A trust in God that he will avenge us. 
a trust uh, that only God's vengeance is truly just. So how we respond to persecution is one of the greatest ways we can A, and this is important, listen to this, how we respond to persecution is one of the greatest ways we can A, exercise our faith and trust in God. If you've ever, ever wondered, how, how do I trust God? How do I exercise faith in God? That's one way. When you're persecuted, you trust him. And then B, it demonstrates God's love to the world. So similarly to how I ended our Philemon sermon a few months ago, uh, we're going to go to communion now. This is at, the t- at this time, I'd like to invite the band up. And I want you to invite y'all to look inward. Okay, and examine your hearts. And I want us to ask a series of questions. If you want to write these down to kind of mull over these over the next few minutes, I invite you to do so. The first question is this. Who is the enemy in your life that you would rather take vengeance on than show mercy to? Who is the enemy in your life that you would rather take vengeance on than show mercy to? Number two, where do you need to trust that true righteous vengeance belongs only to God? Where do you need to trust that true righteous vengeance belongs only to God? And then finally, and this just ties everything together, are you ready to break the cycle of vengeance? I'm going to pray and we'll go into communion. Heavenly Father, our desire is for you. And Lord, I know that what I just preached is a really, really hard thing to be okay with. Because Lord, it feels so unjust when evil men get away with evil deeds. And God, we want justice. And our desire for justice is something you made us with at the very beginning. But that justice has been tainted by sin into something called vengeance. And Lord, if we allow ourselves into that cycle of vengeance, it's an endless cycle of pain and misery. And Lord, we thank you for people like David who showed us that there's a better way. We thank you for your son who died on a cross and showed us the best way to love our enemies, to trust you, and to give our vengeance up to you. So Father, I pray for that heart that's struggling with this concept of trusting you that you will avenge and instead love your enemy. I pray for that heart this morning that you would open them up to your truth, to your word, to your will, to your love and show them that you're always better. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.